0: presents a conversation. I want to make one
1: thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything you can the on. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do?
0: I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world.
2: Don't
3: tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. and Welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for April the 26th, 2020. Yes, the last Sunday of April. Welcome to our look at the world of politics and policy. We take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So, as always, be safe, be home, take a break. Grab a beverage and we'll try to get you prepared with the information that will be helpful for you for the rest of the week. We're happy to say that the show's been extended until 8 p.m. on Sunday, so hopefully we can get more of that information to you during these uh, very, very unusual times. And, Roger, I, I'm I'm cooking like crazy at home. I, I oh, mean, really? Uh, the soundtrack of my life <laughs> is the dishwasher going. I don't think I've ever used a paper dishwasher. Paper plates?
0: Paper plates. No. No.
3: Come on. All right,
0: all right. The, the environment. We have to protect. Yes, the yeah, exactly. I, I mean... I have to admit, our, our son, who lives with us, uh, has been doing a lot of the cooking. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah,
3: very nice. I mean, if he knows how to cook. Oh, he does. Okay.
0: Yeah, he knows how to
3: cook. Well, he didn't learn from you.
0: <laughs> Heaven forbid. <laughs> I made... I made uh, Three meals when they were growing up, and I had to make dinner for them. One was fish, one was chicken, and I think the other was mac and cheese. <laughs> and it was the same every week.
3: <laughs> Well, at least mac and cheese is always safe. Oh, well, of course. You, know, but,
0: uh, <laughs> you cooking anything fancy, like five-star restaurant stuff?
3: No. I, well, sometimes. Okay. I mean, well, like tonight I made uh, uh, from Paul Prudhomme, the classic uh, Cajun uh, chef from New Orleans. Oh, yeah. They, uh, made his original uh, red beans and rice with uh, ham and uh, andouille sausage. Nice. So and you, Plus, I got the real good red beans, the camellia red beans from uh, New Orleans, which oh. are the best beans in the world to make for red beans and rice. Look at you. The longer, um, the longer you cook them, the creamier it gets. A bean
0: aficionado
3: you well, are. No, if you're going to cook, you want to use the right That's stuff. That's true. That's true. But, uh, yeah, but I mean, even things, and I tell you, I, I'm not a big, normally a big eater except for dinner time. Mm-hmm. But when you're at home, it's like, there's the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> move away from the fridge. No, no it's move. <Thanos> <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, you got your, your little lunch meats there. Mm-hmm, and you're sure. Like fixing sandwiches mm-hmm. and things like that. And it's too handy. Yeah, it it's is. Too it's darn way too handy. I, I,
0: I justify it with the length of... Uh, that I have to walk from where I am watching TV to the kitchen, <laughs> uh, and if How I many
3: calories are going to be expended.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, if I have to think about the choices, then I continue to walk back and forth. Now I've worked up a good sweat, right. and I usually make the wrong choice. Of, of what to take back with me <laughs> but at least i feel a little healthier <laughs> well i
3: i even bought i haven't had like uh, uh popcorn oh you know, microwave popcorn forever, yeah right okay and i'm going well you know you were kind of binge watching things or mm-hmm. whatever and so yeah i bought a you know a lot of microwave popcorn
0: and nothing wrong, as long as it's the diet popcorn. Yeah, right. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> just, yeah. just trying to help you out. Just, yeah, just like the old days when I'd
3: ordered the Big Mac with the large Diet Coke. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, sure. It made a big difference. Yes, the balancing routine. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and, and it didn't matter, even even with the theater butter on it you still y- right put more butter on top of it oh of
0: course you know. yeah because it's never enough no you no. can't
3: have enough of yeah. that
0: but it's uh, like standing at the uh, in the theater when they ask if you want butter, you say, yeah. And they put it under that spigot. Right. And and they turn around and pour a little bit in. You just go, can I have a little more? Yeah. yeah don't right? don't
3: yeah. I'll tell you when to stop. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's not real butter either.
0: No, of course not. It's, it's
3: it, so, some butter-flavored product. Right,
0: right. But it does the job. It's very satisfying. <laughs> it, it fills the need.
3: No matter what the cost is health-wise, you feel good. And there's just enough salt in it to make you have to reorder another drink. Oh, of course. Thank goodness for the endless refills. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> another thing I miss, and I haven't been to a theater in a long time. I, I mean, for movies. Well, I've yeah. been to a movie theater. But uh, uh, all of a sudden now, yeah, you got innumerable things to look mm-hmm. at on television. Oh, sure. Way. In fact, I think, personally, there's way
0: too much because now it's so hard to make the decision... And I've already, my problem, I've already watched everything I wanted to watch. And I know it's first world problems, uh, but right. it's, so we find other things to do,
3: you such, know. Such as? Oh, read. Yes, um, I've been doing that. Spend too much time on social media. Now, see, that's, um, that, that's the bad part.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I have had an outlet. I've, I've had to uh, edit my book. Oh, yes. Um, So I have gone through the third edit, fourth edit phase already. And uh, we're waiting for the printer to get back up to speed. And so I think I've looked at that way too many times already. Yeah. You know, I've done that with
3: news stories Mm -hmm. that I've written and that are. Tend to be kind of complex and technical, and you know the subject. Obviously, it's you're writing a book about your life, so no one knows that better than you do.
0: Yeah, but you want to make it understandable to the reader, so you know it's, you got to uh,
3: have some outside eyes. Yeah, again. exactly. Because you become be, you get immersed in this writing bubble,
0: mm-hmm. definitely,
3: and it's your world is that bubble, mm-hmm. and you know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. But that's why you need that fresh set of eyes to make sure that everybody else knows what you're talking about. Yeah, and thank
0: about. goodness I've, I, I've got that. I've got an editor. I've got a typesetter. I've got the family. And so it, it's good. I, after a while, you've, you've got to have someone else look at it.
3: Well, I'm looking forward to it when it comes out. Well, thanks. We're going to give it a lot of attention uh, on the website and everything else. I appreciate it. This is the Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson. <laughs> Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Roger is here to keep us up to date on all the news. Producer Cacera is here to field your phone calls. We're at 312-981-7200. You can also text us at that number, 312-981-7200. We're on Facebook.com slash TheSundaySpin. And we're on Twitter at at symbol SundaySpin. Remember, you can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. You can also get our podcasts at iTunes by searching for my name, Rick Pearson. Up ahead on the show, after we take a spin through uh, the last week, after the 5.30 headlines from Roger, we'll talk to Cook County Commissioner Bridget Gainer, and we'll talk about the county's efforts to deal with the pandemic and her efforts to try to help small business. We're going to focus a little bit on small business today, too, after the news from Roger at 6.00 we'll speak to Elliot Richardson. He's the co-founder and president of the Small Business Advocacy Council. We'll talk to him about these federal and state efforts to try to help the backbone of the economy, as we all know, that's small business. Uh, After an update of the news at 6.30, we'll speak to Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of Schaumburg. We'll talk to him about the latest coronavirus relief effort from Congress, what might be ahead in the next legislative package, as well as some things that... uh, He and his committee have found out about the issue of uh, testing people for uh, the coronavirus antibodies and what the FDA is and isn't doing. After the news at 7 o'clock, we'll speak to Brad Cole. You may remember Brad. He's the executive director of the Illinois Municipal League. and We'll talk to him about the impact of the coronavirus on local municipal revenues. Already news about some municipalities facing shortfalls in revenue, starting to lay off uh, first responders. So we'll talk to him about that. And then after a final spin through the headlines at 7.30, we'll speak to Amanda Vinicky, a good friend of the program. She's correspondent at WTTW Channel 11, and we'll try to unpack the past week and talk about the week ahead. So that's all coming up on your Sunday spin. But uh, time to kick off our spin through the last week of national news, and what a week it's been. And I'd like to go back to earlier this week when... As the Congress was debating this latest coronavirus package to help small business and health care, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky drew basically a line in the sand. He said he's not in favor of helping state and local governments whose tax revenues have plummeted due to stay-at-home orders. He says, we're not interested in Washington. Now, Illinois Senate President Don Harmon it may have inflamed the debate a bit when he asked the feds for $10 billion to help shore up Illinois' woefully underfunded public pensions. Still, McConnell says if states have financial problems from their own mismanagement, including their pension problems, they should just consider bankruptcy. Here's McConnell on Hugh Hewitt's syndicated show.
1: We all represent states. We all have governors, regardless of party, who would love to have free money. And that's why I said yesterday we're going to push the pause button here because I think this whole business of additional assistance for state and local governments needs to be thoroughly evaluated. You raised yourself the important issue of what states have done, many of them have done to themselves with their pension programs. Uh, There's not going to be any desire on the Republican side to bail out state pensions. Uh, borrowing money from future generations. So this is a much bigger conversation than we've had uh, providing assistance for small business because the government shut them out, put them down, put them out of business, or assistance to hospitals, which are overwhelmed by the COVID-19 disease. This is a very different decision. Uh, These are all taxing authorities, just like we are, and I think that's why we need to have a, a fulsome, Uh, conference-wide discussion among Senate Republicans before we go down this path.
3: Now, that was uh, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat, didn't take kindly to McConnell's remarks. The Democratic governor was harsh in his response to the Senate Republican leader. Here's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo.
2: It's one of the dumb statements of all time. Uh, Mitch McConnell, they're talking about bringing back the economy, and then he says states should declare bankruptcy. How does that help the national economy? States should declare bankruptcy. He then says this is a bailout to the blue states, which was a really offensive statement. What he's saying is the blue states are the states that have the coronavirus problem. Why? Because the coronavirus problem is basically a function of density. And urban areas have more density. And those are cities and cities are blue. They are Democrats. So why should he bail out the blue areas? I mean, it really is offensive. Uh, You talk about one issue where you you think you can get past partisanship and pettiness. uh, And now you, you talk about helping communities where people are dying and you say they are blue states No, the coronavirus attacks Republicans and it attacks Democrats. It doesn't ask someone, are you a Republican or are you a
3: Democrat? That's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Even some Republicans were taken aback by McConnell's comments. New York Republican Congressman Peter King appeared on Fox News and he said Washington will have to help the states.
4: No one's looking for any money other than that we lost directly because of the coronavirus. We're talking about paying the cops, the firefighters, the doctors, all of the lost revenue also because of coronavirus. This has nothing to do with pensions, nothing to do with state spending. Listen, I'm not a big fan of uh, Governor Cuomo as far as his policies as governor, but I think he's doing a very good job as far as the uh, coronavirus is concerned. And none of the money we're talking about, none of the uh, funding would be in any way tied to state policies. It's entirely because of the coronavirus, because of the shutdown. Like in my county, Nassau County, which, by the way, is almost twice as many deaths as the entire state of California. 40% of the county budget comes from sales tax. Sales tax is going to be almost zero, probably, you know, for the next few months. So how do you make up that in the budget? That's directly because of coronavirus. Coronavirus. All of the money spent with the hospitals, all of the expenditures. So Mitch McConnell, when he says that we should go bankrupt, you know, one of the reasons that New York has problems otherwise is because we subsidize Kentucky. We get uh, many, many billions less back from the federal treasury than we pay in, while Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, they walk off with billions more that they're entitled to himself, if he wants to start pointing the finger, you should look in the mirror.
3: That's Republican Congressman Pete King from New York. Uh, certainly a lot of controversy over this with the idea that uh, states are going to be looking for help. Um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that will be part of the next package, despite what uh, Mitch McConnell says. And Certainly the issues of paying first responders, paying those paychecks. Uh, another interesting kind of take on this is while McConnell billed this as kind of a, an attempt at a blue state bailout, you have uh, a number of states with no income tax. You have Florida. Uh, you have uh, Texas. uh Texas, certainly a large red state with no income tax, they rely on sales taxes. This has not exactly been a good season for sales taxes, given that you have businesses shut down. So there's likely to be pressure from all sides, uh, Republican and Democrat, on, on what McConnell says. Now, we, of course, saw the passage of the last uh, most recent package, uh, the relief package, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, got an infusion of cash after its initial allotment of $349 billion was burned through. There's new cash there. But Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin told Fox Business News he doesn't necessarily see another business aid package.
1: Well, I hope we are going to get back to work fairly quickly. And you know, we're, we're kind of operating under the environment that uh, we are going to open up parts of the economy. And uh, we're looking forward to, by the time we get later in the summer, having most of the economy, if not all of the economy, open.
3: That's Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, as I said, says there will be another congressional package. And she says it will have to help state and local governments with their payrolls. She was on Bill Maher's HBO show.
5: That's why we need another bill. That will be costly. And we call it our Heroes bill. And that's for state and local, but it's not state and local bureaucracy. It's Healthcare workers, police and fire, emergency services people, our teachers, our transit workers, all of the people that are paid for by the local and state and local uh, public sector. They need jobs too. And they right now are the ones on the front line risking their lives to save other people's lives. And, uh, and on top of that, they may lose their jobs because of the, uh, uh, the loss of revenue to the state. So that will be our next. Bill and it will be hundreds of billions of dollars as well to states and localities, counties, municipalities, cities, some bigger than uh, small towns. But nonetheless, all having the responsibility of meeting the needs of healthcare needs of coronavirus, but also recognize the revenue loss that they have. And that has to be recognized as a cost of the coronavirus.
3: So, of course, perhaps the biggest and most controversial news of the week was President Trump telling his team of medical experts that they should look at injecting disinfectant to kill the coronavirus. Uh, For pure context, here is what the president said.
6: A question that probably some of you are thinking of if you're totally into that world, which I find to be very interesting. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. Yeah, the right, books could. right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it would be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's, uh, that's pretty powerful.
3: So uh, there's the president and now we have states checking uh, increased calls to their poison health line. Uh, Also notable is that after the urging several times, uh, there was no briefing uh, on the White House Corona Task Force uh, with President Trump to have a forum today or perhaps in the foreseeable future. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. 5.35 on this Sunday afternoon as we shift into evening. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. This is your Sunday spin. And joining me now on the phone is Cook County Commissioner Bridget Gaynor. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining me this evening.
7: Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
3: Well, I mean, we heard uh, that latest update from Roger in the newscast about uh, small business uh, bankruptcy filings. And... Uh, You know, we hear stories all the time about people that under the first paycheck protection program that filed uh, to, 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 you know, when it's an admirable program, keep employees on the payroll, keep, you know, Mm -hmm. keep business going. People couldn't access it. The money ran dry. Now we have a new round of funding going in and still a lot of questions about whether some of those small businesses that applied are, are still going to be able to access funds.
7: Well, I think it's a great question. You'll notice in this second round of funding, the government actually carved out sixty billion to go through community development finance institutions. It's kind of they're a little bit like a credit union, closer to the ground. They tend to serve, um, you know, more neighborhood businesses. They reach out especially to low income and minority communities. But it's only sixty billion of the six hundred and seventy seven that went out. And what you saw was a small business was competing head-to-head with, you know, a major franchise who has a bunch of people that are accountants and work the numbers, and and it wasn't made clear who it was really designed to help. So I think they tried to correct some of it in the next phase of it. I think it's interesting that some of these large businesses have been really – pressured by the public to return the money. Top shamed. Delis. shamed. Yeah, shamed. Right. Internet shaming. I mean, maybe is maybe we'll find a good use for the Internet yet. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we're, you know, we can't hate Facebook completely. Um, but, you know, so they have. And, and the question now is like, okay, $60 billion. I mean, I think about it in terms, as you and I have discussed before, I founded the Cook County Land Bank, and we have about 400 small developers. I mean, the good news is there's 300 active projects that these guys are still working right now that's keeping about a thousand people employed in neighborhoods across Chicago and the Cook County. But, you know, we did a special webinar for them with the SBA and, you know, these are small developers working out of their house, sometimes even out of a truck and or a living room. And to put them in competition with, you know, a major restaurant chain or a major business, you know, you should have sliced up the money differently. I think this I think this next three hundred million that got signed on Friday if it lasts this week, I'll be surprised.
3: So when you hear people like Treasury Secretary Mnuchin saying mm-hmm. there shouldn't necessarily be any more business relief aid coming out, what do you say?
7: So, look, I think the complexity of bringing people back to work cannot be underestimated. I mean, when you think about, just think about a big office building in Chicago. You've got probably 30, 40 different businesses that are in that office building and everything from white collar workers who can work from home to people that work in the coffee shop and on the ground floor, security personnel, all of that to figure out how those companies, this isn't just a government decision. I mean, I appreciate that some of these governors feel under pressure. And so they say, okay, I'm going to, you know, now you all can open. That doesn't mean the businesses aren't going to feel at risk. And and what what are they asking their workforce to do and how much risk they're asking them to take? So the idea that they don't want to create any more business aid, but yet they can't wave a magic wand and make, you know, millions and millions of people want to go back to work. So I, I don't know if he's got total control over that.
3: Well, I, I, think it it's that kind of, I think it's kind of twofold is one is about employees necessarily wanting to go back to work. Uh, as well as customers. Do they really think you flip a switch and you can just, Yeah. I mean, are the customers going to be there, let alone the employees?
7: Well, think about a hotel, you know, you say, okay, now you can open your hotel. Well, okay. People aren't really traveling for work because their workplace might be saying like, okay, slow down. Let's figure out how this is going to make sure to keep everyone safe. Because what is the world of an employer going to look like in the post COVID universe? Like, Is there a different level of workers' comp? Like, how do you prove you, did you get something at work, or did you get the disease at work or not at work, and what do they have to do? And, I mean, it's an enormous amount of really private sector cooperation, and I don't think that can be underestimated. And I think it's, I mean, I know the plans are going on now, and I know the companies are starting to think about it, but I think it's one thing for the government to shut the economy down. It's a whole other thing for them to reopen it
3: so in these webinars and and you're mm-hmm. working with the small business administration yes. uh i mean you can communicate the information Are, do people understand it do they, do they do they want to go through with the process of you know trying to get money that they're not sure they're going to get
7: Well, yeah, well, I will say, so we've done five webinars. So we've done churches, churches and nonprofits. We did one for the land bank. We did, um, you know, small business in the neighborhood, chambers, restaurants, all the whole shebang. We had over 2,000 people call in to those five different calls over the last two weeks. And then I have turned my county office, um, you know, for the the people that work in my office that are working from home now, they're all um, eight to six every day taking calls from people to help them fill this out. I mean, we've had people who, like, take pictures of documents on their cell phone and send it to us, and we've we've submitted it, and they have taken, I mean, I don't even know how many calls, but they're getting an enormous amount of calls. They just get routed to their cell phones. So people are open. The, the application, in fairness, is not that complicated. I mean, you have to pull together the documents. Um, it is pretty straightforward, but um, I think everyone was willing, especially with the PPP money, because... If you use it to pay staff, it's, it's basically a grant. right? So people are definitely willing to go after that.
3: I do know, though, I mean, I, I, I know one friend in particular uh, that uh, runs a not-for-profit and had applied in the first go-round and couldn't even find out from the financial institution whether they had, uh, you know, even received uh, the filing. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of hurdles at the start of this, but also, you know, there there were those questions. And, yes, you've pointed out that there's money set aside for uh, kind of more grassroots businesses. But, you know, when you see these stories about larger banks were basically, you know, front-loading bigger customers because they would make a bigger percentage of processing fees, I'm just wondering if there isn't a high level of skepticism.
7: There, there should be a high level of skepticism because it wasn't just – I mean, look, the banks process their own customers first, partly out of ease. You already know these people. But there's also, you know, there's another issue, which is if you have an outstanding uh, loan to a business, you absolutely want to make sure that business survives, you know. And so there's there's a very much of an incentive for the banks to help – their own customers and their bigger customers to whom they have, you know, more outstanding loans and more business. And so the CDFIs aren't really like that. You know, this is like Chicago Community Loan Fund or Accion Those guys are operating and doing what I think most people thought this was supposed to do, which is small restaurant business. I mean, all the people that we interact with in our daily life who now have nothing. And so it was really, it was just, you know, the starting gun got shot at the same time and not everyone, I don't think was starting, you know, from the same line. And so you saw some people be more successful. I do not think this is over. And I also think that, you know, I know the speaker and others are pushing for money to go to the cities and counties and municipalities, which I get the complexity on the pension stuff and bankruptcy and all that other nonsense. But, If money goes to the municipalities, I think there will be another opportunity to fund some of the small business and other small grant programs that both the city and the county have been doing.
3: Well, and and I was going to ask you about that. I mean, what uh, what is there available locally?
7: mm -hmm. So both the city and the county have set up really targeted to small business. You know, you have to have less than 50 employees. Um, the county's giving out $20,000. The city's giving out up to 50000 And it is really much, it's, it's geared to the small coffee shop, the corner restaurant, the nail salon, the hairdresser. You know, it, it's everything that really makes neighborhood living worthwhile. You know, you've got to keep those guys around or we're going to see a lot of abandoned storefronts over the next year and you know i just look at you know my sister and my brother-in-law own farmhouse so they got four restaurants now one in evanston at three in chicago and you know this took 10 years to build up over the course of time and if it's you know you can only a small business can only stay afloat for so long they're still doing a ton of delivery but you know the city and the county have those loans out and i'm hoping that people can take advantage of them and just keep it together until the economy opens up again.
3: We're speaking with Bridget Gaynor, Cook County Commissioner. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune here in the Skyline Studio. Joining me on the phone is Bridget Gainer, Cook County Commissioner, Democrat from the north and northwest side. We're talking about relief for small businesses. And, uh, Commissioner, before the break, I'm glad you kind of touched on uh, the family connection with restaurants because yeah. I've, I've started to see some of the chatter, and, and I guess it's kind of inevitable when there's issues involving some kind of relief about uh aid to specific sectors and you know obviously chicago gotten to be the whole area just such a foodie town and the increasing concerns about you know will restaurants be able to open and it looks like in the phasing of social distancing physical distancing however you want to say it that restaurants and bars are like the last things that'll reopen
7: They are. I mean, I I got a text from a friend last night, and he was saying, God, would I love to go out for a drink right now? And and you think, like, the the, the ease of that you used to just, you'd walk into a place, you'd meet someone, sit down at the bar, have a drink, you know, and then go on your way. Like, that was a huge part of life and relationships and your neighborhood and everything. And, you know, you really, A, you realize what you miss, and you realize that those places are... As important to the fabric of a of a neighborhood as a whole bunch of other things, grocery stores and you know all of that. And I really, you know, it's it's tough, especially with the bars. And I see it with with Nora and Ferdy at Farmhouse. You know, the the liquor business is a big part of any restaurant's margin. So when you get rid of that, it's hard to do that in takeout. You know, I mean, it's you can't take out the experience of sitting with a friend across, you know, at a right. bar and having a conversation
3: uh we've got a a text uh that that says you know can can mom and pop kind of places qualify for the uh, paycheck protection program
7: yes god yes yes and you know if you don't mind i would love to give out the phone number of my office because like i said it routes to the cell phones so it's it's 312-603-4210 and there's four women that work in my office. One of them answers the phone all the time. It routes to the cell phone. And we will literally, from beginning to end, help you fill this out and walk you through the documentation. We can submit it for you if you don't have a computer or access to the Internet or it's, it's hard. Um, like I said, we, you know, we're taking people's cell phone pictures and uploading them and completing the applications. But also we can help refer you now to a, a, a community development finance institution. Like I said, these smaller local groups because depending on the neighborhood you're in they're really familiar you know with with probably they serve people more mom and pops so we can refer you and we can also help fill out the application so that's again it's 312-603-4210 and i mean we can put that out on on twitter as well i um i really want to encourage people to call because don't be intimidated by thinking oh god it's a government loan program it's going to be you know a a big monster. It's not. And we can help.
3: Is there an email address as well?
7: Yes. Yes. Um it is uh oh wait let me no it's Bridget B R I D G E T at bridgetgainer.com It's easier than the county one. It's Bridget B R I D G E T at B R I D G E T G A I N E R com. You can just email and we'll we'll refer.
3: And truly the time to act is now.
7: Yes, it's right now because the money just got uh, it just got allocated, and the applications start being accepted tomorrow morning. And you know, there's going to be a run on the bank no pun intended and and it will be there'll be a lot of demand. But there are those city and county programs out there as well. If you live in the suburbs, you can apply to the county, and if you live in the city, you can apply to the city program.
3: Uh, I want to kind of shift gears for in the couple of minutes we have remaining, yeah. but. Is what do you see as far as county finances?
5: well,
7: we're kind of estimating that, um, that right now, which is hard to tell but but based on what we see, we're probably going to be down about two hundred million dollars in revenue and so just to give people some kind of context when the president increased uh, the the sales tax last time by a penny that's that makes 400 million dollars a year that penny so it's about half of that increase is we're thinking will be short because a lot of the county's revenue is very sensitive to the economy it's it's sales tax it's bars restaurants parking those types of things you know we we only get probably less than 20 percent of our budget from property tax and that hasn't increased in 1994 so a lot of it is in these other taxes and so there will be a decrease in revenue, but there will also be a really increased demand. You know, the hospital system, you know, Cook County Health and Hospitals, they have not been able, just like any other hospital, to perform any of the of the surgeries and procedures that actually make the money over the last two months. And they've been very focused, rightfully so, on everything to do with coronavirus. However, um, so it's going to be a decrease in revenue there. But we also think that there will be a big uptake in demand. And we end up serving those who have nowhere else to go. So if you don't have insurance, um, you come to county. And I think a lot more people are going to find themselves in that position with all of the unemployment that we have now.
3: Further adding to the cost of health care and the yeah. demand on the budget.
7: Exactly, and if we don't figure out as a country with 22 million people who file for unemployment and we know that most people get their health care from their job, there's got to be a, you know, you have to reopen public exchanges either at the state or a federal level because COBRA is largely unaffordable to a lot of people, and there needs to be a better solution for that.
3: Uh, so, I mean, obviously people are looking at the feds for doing some kind of an offset. On, on municipal budgets, uh, right, despite what Mitch McConnell is saying, uh, right. the, but but the question becomes, you know some would like to see it as an unencumbered kind of block grant. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then there's oversight questions. Um, but are you, do you have any faith that this Washington will be able to move forward with some kind of aid to offset the <sighs> revenue loss of coronavirus?
7: well we we saw it after the last financial crisis 10 years ago so part of the tarp money paid states counties and cities for things like teacher salaries police fire road construction i mean it really was geared towards how do you fill the payroll it's almost it was almost like a payroll protection for local government so we we've seen the government do that already and it kind of got the the public sector workforce back on its feet to do the really vital functions um, until the revenues were able to catch up. And so that was, that's you know, there's a precedent for it. It's been done. It's worked in the past. And so I can definitely see something like that happening in the future.
3: I, I, I'm curious, too, about whether yeah. maybe the, the, the idea of, you know, obviously pensions are always a, a, a difficult subject to talk about in the state, but whether... You know, that that talk of uh, pension relief coming from the feds yeah. from the Senate president actually kind of maybe took us off point here of what people are actually looking at.
7: Yeah, I think that was a little bit of a, of a distraction. I think it's, you know, I mean, look, it's a little cynical for someone like Mitch McConnell, who, you know, doesn't necessarily have a lot of affection for labor unions, period, or public sector ones, maybe in particular, to throw that out. I mean, the state of Illinois is not Detroit and it's not Puerto Rico. We're we're not going bankrupt. And, you know, that has ramifications that are far more severe than anything that would ever happen from the pensions, just in our ability to borrow money and, and function. So that, that was a total non sequitur. I think the it is, however, more realistic to think that rather than just getting a big block grant from the feds to the state to say, say you know, spend it however you'd like. I think it might likely come in terms of infrastructure, maybe teachers and salaries and support for education. You know, we've got enormous infrastructure needs, and what I think we may want to think about instead of just handing cash is, do you think about a New Deal or a Works Progress, a WPA, where you actually – turn those government dollars into assets. They put people to work, but then you're left with something afterwards that's of value. Roads, bridges, you know, all of those things. And so um, I can see infrastructure. You know, Trump has been talking about infrastructure bills since the day he arrived. And he actually has a decent relationship with with the trade unions um, that support the building trades. And maybe this is possible because the Democrats want it, and he wants it, and it's an election year. So maybe that's the way that we see support at the state level.
3: And, I mean, kind of what what was an old fashioned stimulus program, uh, from, right. from the Depression was right. that, that was that was the public works, and there's no shortage of uh, infrastructure repairs that need to be done in the state.
7: No shortage of that. And remember, the WPA also supported artists and yep. writers and people on the education front and documenting um, the uh, you know the history of the country and it's it's not unimaginable that that's the type of thing that we need.
3: We've got one uh, last question here. Um, this is from a texter is is there a website uh, that the county has for those uh, county loan programs that you talked about?
7: Absolutely. It's www.cookcountyil.gov and then you can do backslash corona.
3: So www.cookcounty.gov backslash corona. Exactly. Great.
7: And that's all there. And, um, and again, send me an email or call the office, and we will absolutely gear you to everything. And that number, again, is 312-603-4210. Um, and I'll just put one plug on Friday morning, we are doing a virtual town hall again, but this time with um, Senator Durbin and representing a couple of people that are doing really amazing things. And, and you know, there's so much desire to be helpful right now. Um, Kelly O'Donnell, who runs the Lakeview Pantry, Rebecca Shee with Business Immigration Coalition talking about undocumented people, Rebecca Dar with Wings talking about this really growing issue of domestic violence and what we can do about it and we will be talking about phase four with the senator what's going to come down the pike as well as what can you do right now to assist um you know your community and our neighbors
3: how can you access that uh, virtual town hall by the way
7: so we will um we will be posting it on twitter and what what i will do is um because it will have, like, a specific Zoom address. But I'll post it, and I'll send it to you guys, and um, you can put it out there. And the senator will be talking about Phase 4, and we'll be talking, um, you know, so people can really figure out. It's not just your money. It's also your time.
3: All right. Well, that's Cook County Commissioner Bridget Gaynor. Uh, Thank you so much for the information, and we'll be looking forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Thanks. Take care, Rick. Bye. This is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Good Sunday evening. Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. You heard during Roger's newscast the concerns uh, being expressed by public health professionals around the country over uh, President Trump's uh, remarks of last week involving uh, the use of uh, uh, basically poison uh, and uh, poison health help centers are getting all kinds of calls. Uh, one of Trump's top medical experts, uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, sought to explain the president's disregarded comments by saying that the president likes to think out loud. Here's uh, Dr. Burks on Fox News.
4: No, when he gets new information,
0: he likes to talk that through out loud um, and really have that dialogue. And so that's what dialogue he was having. I think he just saw the information at the time, um, immediately before the press conference, and he was still digesting that information.
3: Better to digest information than Lysol. Just a, a bit of advice here from the show host. The president, of course, was asked about Uh, his comments and he said he was being sarcastic about injecting disinfectant or bleach
6: now I was asking a question sarcastically to reporters like you just to see what would happen now disinfectant for doing this maybe on the hands would work and I was asking the question of the gentleman who was there yesterday bill because when they say that something will last three or four hours or six hours But if the sun is out, or if they use disinfectant, it goes away in less than a minute. Did you hear about this yesterday? But I was asking a sarcastic and a very sarcastic question to the reporters in the room about disinfectant on the inside. But it does kill it, and it would kill it on the hands, and that would make things much better. That was done in the form of a sarcastic question to the reporters.
3: And, of course, anybody who saw the press conference knows that it was not done in a sarcastic way to reporters. It was actually posing questions to his medical experts. So not reporters, but uh, that's his story. Well, joining me now on the phone is Elliot Richardson. He is the co-founder and president of the Small Business Advocacy Council. Elliot's a good friend of the program, and as I said, it's, I think it's important we devote some time to talking about uh, the small businesses, uh, their access to capital at this important time, their access to government and local loan programs, and, uh, and any other kind of relief that's possible. Elliot, thank you so much for joining me.
8: Rick, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
3: Well, I, I don't know if you had a chance to hear uh, Commissioner Gaynor uh, in the previous half hour, but she seems you know optimistic that uh, people will be able to access this, small, more small businesses will be able to access this round of the Paycheck Protection uh, Program than that first round. Uh, is that your feeling?
8: Well, I did hear the commissioner, and, and you know, I think she articulated it quite well. Um, yeah, there's optimism. Let's just say that small businesses uh, are, are just getting devastated right now by this pandemic, um, and the rollout of the initial PPP program, I think, was uh, was that it was. You know, not well done. And this time around, there is cause for optimism, Rick. And that cause for optimism is, as Commissioner said, there are going to be funds set aside for community banks and for more local financial institutions, and frankly, for just more institutions that can help get this uh, badly needed access to capital to very small businesses. The problem remains, navigating the process is very, very difficult, for a small business, for a micro-business, and um, getting to the right financial institution to help uh, is also going to be a challenge. So I think there's optimism. It is, you know, very good news that the PPP loan program received additional funds, but I think a lot of us are worried that those funds are going to make their way into the hands of the small business owners that need them and that small business owners are going to understand exactly how to go about this process and how to find institutions that will want to work with them.
3: Well, it was my understanding in the first round that it, it didn't matter if you, your business was a customer of a financial institution. If financial institutions could do SBA loans, they could do you.
8: Well, they could. But, you know, the problem was there were so many people that were vying for these PPP loans. And they are so popular because they could be a forgivable loan, and that's understandable. But there was such a um, rush to try to get to these loans that, you know, I think banks, financial institutions were overwhelmed. And it was these smallest businesses that don't have strong ties to a bank that really struggled to get through the process, to have their applications processed, and to ultimately receive the funding. And I think that's what resulted in the profound frustration you saw from small businesses when those funds ran out. And, you know, they're hopeful now. A lot of businesses are applying for these PPP loans that they're going to come to fruition. We're going to have to wait to see what happens uh, this week.
3: We're speaking with Elliot Richardson, co-founder and president of the Small Business Advocacy Council. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday spin. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline Studio. Joining me on the phone again is Elliot Richardson, co-founder and president of the Small Business Advocacy Council. We've been starting out today talking about small business and the options that are available, the options that aren't available uh, as uh, they try to struggle to get through uh, this stay-at-home order and uh, the coronavirus effects. Uh, Elliot do you think we have uh, actually enough money in this go round to satisfy uh, the need? I mean, you mentioned about uh, the set asides for you know more local kind of local based uh, funding out of the Payroll Protection Fund, um, but. You know, we saw how fast the, the first round of money went. Uh, S- uh, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin is saying, you know, we should go slow, uh, perhaps no more business relief funding. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you see things moving forward here?
8: At the first is that we really need to have a comprehensive strategy. Uh, towards, you know, the PPP loans are very important. There's no doubt about that. Um, And is there enough funding in those PPP loans to satisfy the small business community and every business that's struggling right now to keep their doors open? You know, probably not. Um, One thing I hope small business owners are doing right now is looking at some of these other programs that you discussed with the commissioner. You know, the city's got their resiliency fund. Cook County's standing up a program the state treasurer has a fund with 250 million dollars in it um, that he, you know, they're trying to get out through local banks. And while those are not forgivable loans like the PPP programs may be, for businesses that need that capital to keep their doors open and pay their employees right now, these are good options. Um, the problem is. You know, business owners have have so much information coming at them right now, and at the same time, Rick, they're trying to keep their doors open. It's overwhelming. Um, so navigating that process is very, uh, very difficult. So,
3: so how do you do that navigating?
8: You know, I, I, you got to work with with your with your accountant, with your trusted advisors. You got to get on these webinars. I know it takes a lot of time. You know, we've had webinars, the SBA has webinars. Uh, Webinars are, you know, really good information. And then there needs to be a comprehensive strategy. to keep the small business community going. And that includes access to capital through uh, lending. It also includes, you know, we're pushing. We wrote a letter to the governor asking for a deferral of sales taxes for small businesses uh, so so folks can keep those doors open and keep some of the capital that they have and not forgive those taxes because certainly Illinois needs the money, but defer them. Uh, there's things like business interruption insurance and policy that may be able to make funds available if businesses are able, small businesses, to get some money through their interruption insurance. There's all these different ways to help stay, you know, small businesses stay in business right now, and we really have to be looking at all of them and not just focus on one particular thing.
3: I mean, it's there is no one-stop shopping. That's the problem. I mean, that's right and so i mean obviously the work that you do and and other you know chambers of commerce local neighborhood chambers of commerce are are, are vitally important for uh, the business community and those business owners and of course everybody you know you got to take care of the regulars here uh, that that you know keep these places in business but it just i mean it does seem kind of overwhelming
8: well, it is. It's overwhelming, and there is, exactly. You can't just focus on one thing. You know, the, the PPP loans are, are going to be extremely, they are important um, for businesses to, uh, to keep their doors open, but what other policies are we going to implement now that are going to keep these small businesses around for months? six months, a year from now, because the economy is going to take a long time to recover. Um, You know, I think uh, the mayor was talking about, you know, we're not turning on the switch all at once. It's, it's, you know, raising the dimmer. Well, we've got to keep businesses around during that period of time or or when the light is, is fully on, you're going to see Big businesses, you know, big boxes who were able to weather this storm, and the small mom and pops go out of business. And nobody wants to see that. And that's why I think, you know, local business organizations are so strongly pushing things like a deferral of the sales tax um, and and different things that we can do on a state level to supplement what's going on on the federal level, which is, you know, these loan programs that they're trying to stand up. They are standing up, but, but the question is how much money is in there and how is that money going to get down to small businesses?
3: And when you mention about the sales tax deferral, I mean, you should point out that that, that, that this is not novel uh, because it had already kind of been part of the executive order on um, involving some restaurants and bars in the state.
8: You're 100% right. It's not novel. The the sales tax deferral went to smaller bars and restaurants. And, you know, I would argue that a retail shop or a furniture shop or any of these other local businesses need that same relief right now uh, to keep themselves going. And I think what the governor is talking about with, you know, curbside, now being able to pick things up at curbside, if that could be done safely and uh, in a healthy way, because that's paramount. Well, you know that would that's good, that can keep some folks going, but the deferral of the sales tax is a really big deal. You know, you've got you've got property owners right now. You've got this broken chain where you've got property owners who can't collect rent from small businesses who can't open their businesses right now. And those property owners owe money to the bank. And we've got to we've got to look at that as well and, and and come up with some nonpartisan, you know, thoughtful policies on how that's all going to work um, so that we can keep this economy going. And as the commissioner said, you know, it, it's going to take a lot longer to turn it back on than it was to turn it off. And, and we really need a comprehensive strategy strategy here uh, to make that happen.
3: Well, and I see, you know, even, and, and I did discuss this with Commissioner Gaynor about the idea, I mean, it's kind of a 2 prong thing is, you know, it, when businesses are allowed to kind of reopen as normal or the new normal. Uh, you know, you've got concerns about workplace safety that didn't exist before. And then you are also talking about a customer base that it's concerned about its own safety.
8: Oh, absolutely. You know, when people say we're going to reopen the economy um, quickly, I know there's a desire to do that, and small businesses want to get back into business. But, I mean, if they opened up movie theaters tomorrow, I haven't asked one person who said they'd go see a movie with their kids. Um, You know, there's going to be a concern about consumer safety that consumers are going to have. There's going to be employees concerned with safety and employers concerned with that as well, which is why looking at policies, um, not for what's going to happen over the next month or six weeks, but where are we going to be in three months? In four months that's what we need our policy makers on a federal state and local level to do uh, so that when we're able to get back into business uh, businesses are still around even on a city level you know deferment of permits uh, making it easier for businesses who have to go home and work to work at home these are all things that need to be looked at so there's a comprehensive solution
3: I've also been curious, too, about uh, – and, and probably this is more impactful of residential, but certainly it's no, no less concerned to business uh, – what about some kind of property tax deferrals?
8: Yep, I've heard a lot about property tax deferrals, and I think that needs to be looked at. And a lot of people think that that needs to be looked at. So the question is, we want to defer taxes and not forgive taxes. And when I say we – you know, different folks are pushing policies to defer these different taxes, and then at the same time, you know, Illinois has had solvency issues. We all know that. Um, so, striking that right balance is critically important. I think you may see some property tax deferrals, uh, especially, you know, for for in the business. Context, uh, you know, property owners who have tenants who aren't paying them, not because they don't want to pay them, because they simply can't. You know, if you're not open for business and you have no revenue coming in, um, how are you going to pay rent? Um, You know, and and another thing that everybody needs to look at is getting Illinois unemployment system working. Um, You know, that's been really difficult for people. And then you've got these gig employees. Uh, Rick, and these very, right. very small businesses and independent contractors who have had tremendous difficulty getting a PPP loan. And while the CARES Act allows them to file for unemployment, they can't do that yet. So, you know, you got to look at these people, you know, the wedding photographer, the fitness instructor, and say, what are they supposed to do? And, and, and we, we've got to help. I mean, policymakers have to figure out a way to help
3: what uh, what are you and your organization advocate, advocating as far as how we quote reopen unquote
8: you mean in terms of how quickly or the process uh, uh both, in that
3: respect? both
8: yeah you know our we're advocating um reopening in a concerted um but safe way Uh, You know, most of our members understand that to reopen unsafely is probably going to exasperate the problem. So, you know, reopening the economy, I get that question a lot, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, So certainly, you know, if we can do different things to get business moving again, our organization is wholeheartedly in support of that. I mean, that's what we do. We want to support small businesses as long as it can be done in a safe way. But the backstop has to be good policy. So, you know, going back to business interruption insurance, other states have filed legislation asking insurance companies to pay some business interruption insurance to policyholders who have paid into this forever um and never had to use it before and there's different ways to go about that so i think you know again comprehensive way of reopening in a safe way with all of these different policy pieces that if they're put together uh in the right manner will help us get through this unprecedented difficult time and it's going to be difficult no matter what happens i mean all the counties trying, the cities working, you know, we've got state legislators that are trying to, uh, that are trying to uh, help here. And we've got, you know, we've got these PPP loans, but it's going to take a comprehensive strategy to try to navigate this very, very difficult situation.
3: That's Elliot Richardson. He's the co-founder and president of the Small Business Advocacy Council. Elliot, thank you so much for joining me. Rick, thank you so much for having me. Now, the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Uh, President tweeting about the media again uh, today, uh, a series of tweets. Uh, When will all of the, quote, reporters, unquote, who have received Nobel Prizes for their work on Russia, 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 only to have been proven totally wrong, and in fact, it was the other side who committed the crimes, be turning back their cherished nobles so they can be given to the real reporters and journalists who got it right. I can give the committee a very comprehensive list. When will the Nobel Committee demand the prizes back, especially since they were gotten under fraud? The reporters and lamestream media knew the truth all along. Lawsuits should be brought against all, including the fake news organizations, to rectify this terrible injustice. For all the great lawyers out there, do we have any takers? When will the Nobel Nobel Committee Act. Better be fast. Um, They're Pulitzer Prizes, not the Nobel Committee. Just trying to be helpful here. Well, joining me now on the phone is Raja Krishnamoorthi. He's a Democratic congressman from Schaumburg. He is the chairman of the Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy. Uh, Obviously, uh, Congressman, we've been talking a lot about small businesses, and I know that's a big concern of yours as well. But thank you so much for joining me this evening.
9: Absolutely. Thank you, Rick.
3: So I I, uh, let into this with the fact that uh, we've been playing during the newscast that uh, Chuck Schumer has raised an issue that your subcommittee uh, has expressed concerns about. And while everybody talks about testing, 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 uh, certainly part of this being the serology testing to see if someone has been infected and has antibodies, the fact is that we can't really be... uh, we can't really rely on the testing that's available right now.
9: That's right. I think that the FDA has really um, uh, created a wild west of um, unregulated, um, unvalidated tests that, um, you know, a lot of people are uh, going to unfortunately use, and uh, the FDA has basically made it more possible for scam artists to prey upon vulnerable citizens and people will make, unfortunately, dangerous life decisions based on faulty test results. And so um, my committee has called upon the FDA to basically clear the market of all these unauthorized tests uh, and, and to require that any test going forward be authorized by the FDA and also to put out, put out clear standards about exactly what consumers should and should not do with the test results, because from their standpoint, they need to know What does the testing actually mean? And so, really, I believe the FDA has been AWOL on this issue, and it could have dangerous consequences.
3: Well, I find it interesting, and the subcommittee, one of its preliminary findings was that the FDA did not review any coronavirus rapid antibody test kits before they went to market. That's right. and, And so, I mean, we always kind of look at the FDA to protect us from these scams. So, uh, how can we be assured of anything at this point?
9: That's right. I mean, when people, you know, buy, um, you know, most uh, healthcare products or products that are, are this uh, important for their health, um, they usually uh, assume that the FDA has approved their sale. However, in this case, um, the FDA is allowing anybody to virtually anybody to sell anything. I'll just give you an example. Uh, They uh, do have a way that companies can require authorization of their testing kits. Only four companies thus far have taken advantage of that route, whereas 107 companies have gone the other route where they basically can um, sell something without FDA authorization and uh, they have to just, quote-unquote, self-validate. In other words, tell the FDA that they did validate their data, um, and the problem is the FDA is not requiring them to produce the data, and they're not even taking enforcement actions to prevent fraud. Or fraudulent claims about their tests. So this is very dangerous, Rick.
3: Well, and especially because we're kind of looking at that uh, at antibody testing as kind of that essential phase to move forward. And you know, plus of the antibody tests that are available, uh, there's not a, a lot of confidence in, in the outcomes that they're, de- they're determining anyway.
9: That's right. Um, The science is still unsettled, and that's something that perhaps your uh, listeners and you already know, but people don't even know what it means for the presence of uh, COVID-19 antibodies uh, in terms of the immunity that it confers on somebody, um, whether it whether it means that the person uh, is uh, henceforth immune from a second infection, uh, whether they could stop practicing social distancing, and so forth. In fact, the WHO just announced a couple of days ago that they are finding that people with antibodies to COVID-19 are developing second secondary infections in some cases. And so we have to really be very careful and cautious about what we do with serological testing going forward?
3: I wanted to ask you about uh, obviously with your interest in small business, and we've been talking about that uh, all afternoon. About, yes, you know, so we we finally get a replenishment of the Paycheck Protection Program, um, but and some set aside money for more grounded, more local small businesses, but given how fast the initial round of funding uh, was was taken uh, what are what are the opportunities here for small businesses uh, who who maybe filed the first time and didn't get in what are their chances of getting in before their money runs dry again
9: i think it'll be better i actually want more uh, underlying changes to the program uh, those uh, legislative fixes were not made in this stimulus 3.5 package that we passed two days ago. However, there were some improvements. Here were a couple improvements that were made. One is of the $320 billion that is um, going toward replenishing PPP, $60 billion of it is being set aside essentially for credit unions and smaller financial institutions uh, in the hopes that Because they cater to those smaller small businesses, those smaller small businesses will hopefully get more out of this PPP program. That's been a big concern of mine. The second uh, improvement is there's going to be a significant infusion of money into the disaster loan program that's directly administered by the SBA. It's called the, um, a lot of people call it the IDLE program. Um, It's $60 billion in additional funds there. And the benefit there, again, is a lot of smaller small businesses participate in that type of program, and they don't have to deal with banks. They don't have to deal with uh, lending institutions that might, you know, look down their nose at those smaller small businesses. And, 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 you know, I think that hopefully they'll get access to a little more money.
3: Well, and, and uh, as we've mentioned, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin is saying, well, maybe we don't need to have any more money. Uh, go to businesses after after this that that the economy hopefully will reopen enough that small businesses won't need to come out of the uh, the government uh, printing office.
10: I'm, I'm a little
9: concerned that they're uh, a, a touch um, aloof from the realities of the situation, Rick. I mean, I mean, we are besieged by small businesses every day in my office who are. You know, hanging on by their fingernails uh, to survival right now. This money will carry them forward for um, you know maybe a couple months, but after that, um, you know, business is not going to return to normal so long as we don't have a vaccine, which is not really in the offing for maybe another year. Okay, so if that's the if that's the situation, um, I think that we have to do whatever it takes to keep these small businesses going, if it means a, a greater infusion of money, so be it. You know, we put this economy into a medically induced coma. And uh, it's, it's up to us to, you know, preserve enough, uh, you know, basically supply enough money to preserve the vital signs of the patient. But then we have to wake up the patient and get them going again. <laughs> and that is the um, the role of future packages, I think, at this point.
3: We're speaking with Raja Krishnamoorthi, Democratic Congressman from Schaumburg. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday spin. It's 646 on this Sunday evening. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. We're speaking with Raja Krishnamurthy, Democratic Congressman from Schaumburg. Uh, Congressman, we've got a question from Roberta. Roberta, welcome to the Sunday spin.
7: Thank you, Rick. Uh, Yes, I'm a senior citizen in my 80s, and I never received my stimulus Jack and so did two of my daughters didn't receive theirs. Other and other people in my family received theirs already, and I really could use it. I don't know who you call or what you do. While and forty people on Facebook, my daughter once said they had never received theirs. What do you do, or how do you? Who do you talk to to find out what happens? I call the bank every day. I'm driving them
3: nuts over there. Thank you, Roberta, for calling, Congressman. Some constituent service here.
9: Yeah, uh, why don't you call my office? I'll give you the number. Uh, it's 847-413-1959. Again, it's
3: 847-413-1959. Is this a frequent uh, problem that your office is encountering?
9: Yes. Uh, different people seem to be rec- receiving their checks at different times. There was a group of folks who had provided direct deposit information, um, who received their uh, deposits maybe starting 10 days ago um, and then there's a group of people um, who uh, you know need to get checks and that's where we're seeing a lot of problems rick um, i don't know if you saw the latest but Apparently, there's been a huge delay in the issuance of these checks because Donald Trump wanted to put his name on the checks, uh, which causes a logistical issue. And he wanted to enclose a letter uh, basically telling people that, uh, you know, these checks uh, are basically uh, almost courtesy of him. Um, And uh, anyway, there's a lot of delay and uh, um, I, I don't find it to be appropriate, but that's also... Uh, causing issues too
3: i understand actually that there is a letter that's signed because there were issues about he wanted the his signature on the check and they couldn't do that so that's uh, that's the word out today uh is is that there's an accompanying (laughs) letter with his signature Um, oh my goodness another uh we have a, a texter uh from eight four seven, uh, are grocery store workers and nursing home workers uh, getting hazard pay? I know it's been requested, but I don't know what the status of that situation is. I think they should. That's from Mary. Thank you, Mary.
9: Well, we we as a Democratic caucus put that forward as a priority, even in stimulus three point five. Um, The Republicans with whom we negotiated uh, said that was a non-starter for them. Uh, We're going to try again in the next uh, CARES package, Um, because I do think that, um, you know, a lot of these folks are exposing themselves, Rick, uh, to hazard. And, um, you know, it's nice to say, you know, you're in my thoughts and prayers, but it's another thing to also recognize their um, you know, taking risk with a, a little additional pay, which also will help address their additional expenses.
3: Obviously, uh, there was a lot of talk this week about a, a, a cares for package, stimulus package, uh, kind of the debate that was uh, maybe not started but certainly uh, was emphasized by uh The Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, when he said about states that are uh, having financial issues that uh, the Senate Republicans aren't interested in bailing out states for their past mismanagement, including any pensions, and that uh, they should have the uh, ability to go bankrupt. Uh, What are your thoughts?
9: Well, I think bankruptcy is a a terrible option. I think that the fact that he even mentioned it was... um, kind of uh said in disregard of the fact that it would destabilize the economy it would probably throw us into further chaos at a time when we you know we need to stabilize the economy we need to normalize things um and we need to stop the free fall that's happening and um, i think what he's saying is absolutely unacceptable and um you know in my own district i have mayors left and right uh, who have done the right thing in terms of their fiscal policies. They've balanced their budgets every year. Um, They've held the line on spending um, and they are seeing their budgets go into free fall. Uh, Their expenses have gone up as they try to battle the pandemic and their revenues are drying up. And I guarantee you, um, Rick, that if we don't provide them with this aid, uh, that they are going to have to cut services. Uh, I'm talking about police, fire sanitation and even public health related expenses that are vital to to battling the pandemic so um and i and i also guarantee you one other thing which is that you can ask mayors in rural georgia or in suburban chicago where i represent they're all going to say the same thing which is we need aid now and um Uh, I don't think it should be a partisan issue, and I'm glad that folks like Bill Cassidy, the Republican senator from Louisiana, and Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland, are really stepping up and uh, uh, strongly advocating for it, as we all should.
3: Well, and, you know, we've even uh, seen locally, uh, and we'll be speaking with uh, in the next half hour with Brad Cole, the executive director of the Illinois Municipal League, but we've seen some areas, uh, some municipalities in the state. Uh, frankly, I ran into something from uh, this, the community of Monmouth out in western Illinois, where they're laying off full-time first responders right. as a result right. of a budget crunch.
9: You know, um, one thing that we should remember is that in the last Great Recession, 10 years ago, you know, I was a small businessman then, and and at that time I was very upset that the federal government neglected small businesses. So this time around, I tried to make sure that small businesses were taken care of. But another lesson that we learned from then is if you don't take care of or help those municipalities and uh, state governments that are really suffering, they're going to add to the woes of the economy by laying off, you know, hundreds of thousands if not millions of these firefighters, police officers, uh, and other public servants, and that only furthers uh, the hole in which we're in. So uh, I I hope that um, my Republican counterparts really, uh, you know, basically step up and talk about the need for this. It should not be a partisan issue at this point.
3: I guess the question becomes, though, I mean, if everybody agrees there's the shortfall in revenue uh, and, and it would be, you know, the federal government should consider making up for that. But, you know, should it be unrestricted funds? I know that was one suggestion is that the states ought to be getting block grants. Uh you know, where, where do you draw the line between tying up uh, the hands of a, of a state government or a local government versus, you know, filling what, what could be viewed as legitimate need?
9: You know, I think that um, just as we are basically aiding uh, other entities that are seeing revenue shortfalls, whether it's small businesses, whether it's working families, um, and and basically allowing them to use that money uh, in a certain way, um, I think that we should make up for at least part of the revenue shortfalls that these other entities are seeing, Rick. I I, I just don't see how we can put so many strings on there that they can't use it for um, their daily needs and, and for that money to matter at all to helping with, with, with the response to the pandemic. So, um, you know, I think right now we should avoid the uh, political rhetoric. I think the president said the other day this is a blue state problem, if I'm not mistaken. That was Mitch, well, McConnell.
3: That was Mitch McConnell who said that.
9: Okay. Um, you know, and I, I, I think that that type of rhetoric, uh, you know, just polarizes uh, support, and you know, basically, people in red states think, "Oh, well, this is not something that could possibly help me." <laughs> when in fact, if they talk to their mayors uh, and local public, you know, officials, they would they would learn the opposite.
3: One last thing, since we were speaking about the stimulus checks before, do you see another round of those being issued by the federal government?
9: Possibly, you know, I think that um, twelve hundred dollars for an individual um, is a start, but I really strongly disagree with Secretary Mnuchin, who I believe, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he said he thought that this could last 10 weeks uh, for the average family or for individual. And uh, again, I think he's really out of touch. Um, I think that we have to understand that um, some of these benefits are a start. But the longer that this pandemic uh, extends uh, and the longer that... The economy is kind of moribund, and we're not able to. It's just kind of dead uh, in a lot of places. Uh, w- we gotta, we gotta keep these families alive uh, economically.
3: At what point, though, are we just printing money? Um, <laughs> and, and and when does you know when do we pay the piper?
9: Look, I'm I'm as a former small business person. I I very much uh, want us to live within our means and absolutely debt is a huge problem and a long term problem that we have to grapple with but you know in the short term we got to survive Rick Um, and I I think that's why um, as some of my Republican counterparts when this began said you know this is really hopefully a once in a lifetime situation but at least right now um, I don't see how we can get out of you know, providing a lifeline to people who are literally drowning economically. Um, And I think that if we were to stand on the principle that we shouldn't issue further bonds uh, at a, uh, you know, really historically low rate right now, which um, unfortunately racks up debt, um, we're just going to allow whole sectors of our economy to to die and working families or previously working families to, to go with them.
3: Uh, I know that there has been increased uh, benefits for SNAP, those kinds of things. Do you see that kind of uh, continuing as almost a, a permanent rather than temporary uh, relief?
9: I don't know. Uh, you know, food insecurity was growing even before the uh, pandemic. But um, at least for now and probably for the duration of this recession, um, I, I do see that uh, we're going to have elevated uh, levels of, uh, you know, SNAP benefits. Um, You know, we're talking about, I don't know what the exact numbers are right now. Uh, We're looking at 26 million people unemployed at least. Um, You know, we're looking at upwards of 15 to 20% unemployment, which is um, something we have not seen in a very, very long time. And so... This is a, a kind of an unfortunate new reality that we have to deal with, and but we have to deal with aggressively.
3: That's Raja Krishnamoorthy, Democratic Congressman from Schaumburg. Congressman, as always, thank you for joining me on the Sunday Spin.
9: Hey, thank you so much
3: again, Rick. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on seven twenty WGN it's sunday evening i'm rick pearson of the chicago tribune welcome to the bonus hour third hour of your sunday spin on this sunday evening 312-981-7200 is our phone number and uh, a very interesting show so far with uh, all kinds of information and uh, Someone who is uh, filled with a lot of information and a frequent guest on the show, Brad Cole, the executive director of the Illinois Municipal League, joins me now. Brad, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Nice to be the bonus tonight. <laughs> you, There you go. See, I always treat you well. You do. Uh, well, I, I'm... I'm I know you've uh, appeared uh, several times on uh, some of uh, Governor Pritzker's uh, daily coronavirus updates, and the, the the last time you appeared, you had a you had a very interesting line in your remarks that. Municipal officials, law enforcement agencies, and public safety personnel have been caught in the middle of disputes and disagreements. Those disagreements have included determining what's an essential business is and what is not, and they've included protecting people's rights to protest peacefully against the actions of their government. This has been difficult. Um, caught in the middle, I think, is, is a fair way to put it. Yes, and it has been difficult for a lot of local officials,
10: and I listened to your show this evening, and uh, from a Cook County commissioner to a member of Congress, uh, they talk about the impact on the cities and the villages across the state, and those local officials have been tasked with enforcing the stay-at-home order and the various components of it. Some of those local officials agree with it, some of them don't, but they've all committed to fulfill their obligation, and that's to protect their citizens and to carry out the laws of the state. But sometimes that has put them in the middle. There's, there was a uh, protest in Springfield yesterday, and one last week, and one uh, in western Illinois, and there have been some in Chicago. Uh, those are where the local officials get caught in the middle because the public safety personnel are the ones that have to protect both the public and the people that want to protest. So it has been difficult, and one of the pieces that you mentioned in one of my remarks about declaring or deciding what is essential and what is non-essential, a lot of that was left to the local authorities. The governor's executive orders have said what categories of businesses are essential or not, but a lot of the real detail determination has been left locally. And so we appreciate that. We want more local authority. We don't like preemption, but...
3: It has caused some conflicts at times. Well, and, you know, we talk so often about the re- regionalization of this state. And I just tend to wonder if this coronavirus has in an already kind of divided era, if that hasn't even moved to divide the state even further when the diversity and regionalism used to be so much of a what made this state so great.
10: Oh, sure and it does still make uh, this a great state but it has drawn out some of the differences right now and, and that's where you know we've seen some issues uh, the governor has said rightfully so this disease doesn't know any borders but yet when we look around the state of Illinois we see some areas where there are, are pockets of concentration and there are areas where there are actually no cases at all and that is highlighting the disparity between the different regions of illinois and that's an issue that we've talked about a little bit and how we can reopen and how to get the economy started again whether that can be done gradually or regionally or however
3: well and and i i found it interesting because uh, obviously uh, we just have the the governor's new order that will take effect uh, on may 1st but there had been uh, from his remarks, uh, speaking at the podium at the Thompson Center, w- went from kind of uh, as as you said, there this this virus doesn't know any regional geographic boundaries, that kind of thing. To well, maybe we should look at things on a regional basis with an eye towards hospital utilization, that kind of thing. Uh, to then kind of. Uh, more of the same, basically, in the stay-at-home order for May first. The relaxation in some areas, but but pretty limited areas where that relaxation is. Yeah, it's a tough spot for the governor. He's
10: got to try to manage twelve and a half million people in 102 counties, 1298 municipalities, all with different opinions about this situation, and his goal, as I understand it, is to protect all of those people and places. And it's difficult when you look around uh, the state and try to determine how to do that best. So I'm not uh, second-guessing. We'll offer our suggestions and input, and we have done that, and he has taken it uh, and considered our input. But it is difficult to look around the state and not have questions about why we can't do some things here versus other places. I know that's what we get asked by mayors and local officials, especially from those areas that are not as impacted and even throughout the suburbs. So it's, there are several different tiers of opinions on this from the city of Chicago to the suburban ring to Northern, Central, Southern Illinois. And uh, it's, It's something that's on everybody's mind. I know it's on the governor's mind, but we're going to have to work through that.
3: We're speaking with Brad Cole. He's the executive director of the Illinois Municipal League. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. 717 on this Sunday evening i'm rick pearson of the chicago tribune this is your bonus hour of the sunday spin we're speaking with brad cole executive director of the illinois municipal league so brad as you pointed out you heard uh a cook county commissioner you heard a congressman talking about looking to uh, the federal government for aid uh, For the states and municipalities, Uh, as we've been saying, you've got uh, some resistance from uh, basically Mitch McConnell. uh, That's not universal among Republicans, uh, but certainly being the Senate majority leader, it has some sway. Uh, You have Nancy Pelosi on the other side, the House Speaker, Democrat, saying absolutely there has got to be money for states and municipalities as part of a CARES-4 package. Uh, How do you see this shaking down? Well, we definitely need to see some direct unrestricted funding
10: from the federal government to municipalities. You'll recall that back on March 26th when the CARES Act was – finalized and approved, the Illinois Municipal League sent a letter to the governor and our members of Congress and said, that's great, but the money only comes to municipalities or counties with a population over 500,000. That means one city in Illinois and five counties in Illinois get that direct funding. The rest goes to the state. And we have not been able to see any of the dollars go to any of the other cities or counties yet. And... That's a big concern. We raised that issue because we felt like every other community in Illinois has expenses and if they don't have expenses, they have a considerable amount of lost revenue. Now, obviously, the larger city, the largest city, and the large counties have expenses, too, and lost revenue. But we can't just exclude all of the other communities. And we think that since that was left out of the CARES Act to begin with, that there should be an additional federal package that's put out there, not just for Illinois communities, but for cities and villages across the United States. And in fact, the National League of Cities and the U.S. Conference of Mayors and the National Association of Counties have joined together asking for that package to be considered by the Congress. It should have been in the CARES Act, which was, I think, the second bill that passed. It should have been in the third one or the 3.5, 3.5, which uh, is was just discussed as having the additional money for the SBA programs. But if there's not a fourth package that has direct unrestricted funding for the municipalities in this state and all the other states, then those communities are just going to, they're going to be in a position that I think is unimaginable.
3: Well, I've, t- I've touched on this, and I was I was thinking of you. It was uh, something I saw on Twitter, and it was out of uh out of the Galesburg newspaper about uh, here's a community of Monmouth uh, out in Western Illinois uh, near the uh, Illinois, Iowa border where uh, basically they've got all kinds of uh, first uh, responders that are being furloughed and, and positions being furloughed include two full-time police officers, two full-time dispatch telecommunicators, one public safety officer, officer, two probationary firefighters, and three part-time dispatchers. Now, that to me is about as front line, I think, as you can get.
10: Absolutely. We surveyed communities all over the state to find out what they're doing because of the financial impact of this crisis. And I have a stack in front of me of responses that ranges from eliminating programs to eliminating personnel positions, not just the furloughs and layoffs, eliminating positions. And when you get into a city government, we've talked about this before, Rick. I mean, there's only a couple of places to come up with money. You can either raise revenues or cut expenses. Raising revenues means taxes. Cutting expenses means
3: personnel and programs that's labor labor is the highest uh, is the highest cost
10: for absolutely and so when they're down to the bone already and people are upset about how high their taxes are the only thing that can be done is to eliminate positions and personnel is where you know all of the the money goes basically that's outside of programs and the frontline responders those are That makes up the majority of the staffing for a lot of these communities. So that's why I say if the Congress doesn't act to provide direct unrestricted money for these communities because of their lost revenues, then it's, these communities are going to be a shell of what they were just because they don't have any place else to turn. And I can tell you, it's not just the city of Chicago, it's not just suburban communities, it's downstate as well. But if you look at suburban communities, some of those are losing millions of dollars a month in lost revenues. You just can't make that up.
3: And and well, I, I mean, one thing I found interesting is some of the financial problems of Oakbrook, for example. And Oakbrook's somewhat unique here in that it doesn't really have a local municipal property tax it's dependent entirely virtually entirely uh, on on the shopping mall and the shopping mall is closed Right, and that's not the only community that relies on sales tax. A lot of communities
10: don't have property tax. They have that other sales tax base because they've wanted their residents to be able to enjoy that, and they are a retail center. There there are several retail centers there in the suburban area, but also if you look at downstate, some of the regional hubs have done the same thing. And so at this point, without any retail activity that means they have zero revenue, and that's disastrous on top of a disaster. Uh,
3: obviously, you've been in contact with the congressional delegation. Uh, what what kind of response do you get from them?
10: Well, I, we have a good congressional delegation. It's it's diverse in its partisan composition, but... Uh, we have been supported. The Illinois Municipal League has received terrific support from both of our U.S. Senators and from our House delegation in wanting to do the right thing and being supportive and understanding about the advocacy, advocacy that we put forward on behalf of our members. The problem is that Illinois is just one state, and this is a national issue. You talked about the Senate Majority Leader, Senator McConnell. He's going to play a big role in this. He's not from Illinois, and he is looking at things uh, that relate to his caucus, I suppose. But we have to balance the Republican Senate with the Democratic House and the Republican White House and come out with something that is going to help everybody. Our delegation so far has been supportive of that. I know I've talked with several of the members, if not all of them, and their staffs on a regular basis, and uh, we get we get the support from them, but it's got to be a bigger piece. We need support from the rest of the Congress.
3: One of the things that I've been curious about, and I've kind of just heard murmurs about this, is about uh, an effort to try to uh, defer property tax payments. And obviously, uh, municipalities are not as heavily dependent on property taxes as schools are, but for most municipalities, they do represent a a significant component. I was wondering if you've heard anything along those lines and, and what your thoughts are on that.
10: We have heard it. I've been asked about it. And you rightly noted that the city portion of the property tax bill is de minimis compared to the schools and other folks. I like folks. that
3: word. I've never heard you use de minimis before.
10: <laughs> it might be a little bit of a stretch, but I like it too. But it's anywhere from, you know, zero to 10, maybe 14% of the, of the property tax bill is the municipal portion. So obviously the rest is everybody else. And in that case, it's It's not as much money as it is for the others, but when we have no money coming in on any of these other manners, like the sales tax we just talked about, then that may be all that they're going to get for a while. So the deferral of that, understandably, that would help theoretically the property owner, but it's going to additionally impair the units of local government. I would say also that... I'd say probably half of property tax is being paid in escrow. And so that should be, uh, those payments should have been made and should be uh, being made ongoing as a part of mortgage payments and escrow payments. So um, there's a concern we have about that being deferred. We would prefer that it not be. I would also say that it, that's if that's a decision that the General Assembly is going to make, that's another issue where the General Assembly doesn't Receive the state of Illinois doesn't receive any money from property tax. So, for them to defer it, and I'm not saying that they're going to, but if they were to de- defer it, they would be hurting the income of all the other units of government and not themselves. And that's an issue we would have.
3: And obviously, too, after the governor speaking about the uh, anticipated budget deficit, uh, the question, too, we Always go around to this is the uh, local government distributive fund, the uh, portion of the state uh, income tax that goes to local municipalities. Of course, municipality is going to be impacted by the fact of the uh, moving the uh, income tax deadline to July 15.
10: Yeah, there will be an impact, and of course, the fact that there is less income because people have lost their jobs, so income taxes are going to decline. The collections are going to be deferred, but the, the the payments are going to decline because there aren't as many incomes out there. That's going to hurt the state, but it's also going to hurt local governments. And as we've talked about LGDF before, we've been cut and cut and cut, and this is a time where it's going to show even more so. And we've asked the General Assembly and the leadership to look at returning municipalities to their full 10% share of local government distributive fund, uh, which add a little bit more than 5% right now. But that's going to be hard for them to do because the state's going to want every nickel for themselves. But it, there again, the local governments don't have any other place to come up with the revenue that they've lost as a part of this. And so we need some
3: honest attention to it, both at the state level and the federal level. That's Brad Cole. He's the executive director of the Illinois Municipal League. Brad, as always, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rick. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. 7.34 on this Sunday evening. I'm Rick Pearson with the end of the bonus hour of your Sunday Spin for this Sunday. And uh, quite a lively conversation we've had, uh, talking, of course, about mainly the problems with local government problems with small businesses and dealing with the coronavirus and uh, i wanted to have a good friend of the program to close out this segment of the show uh, amanda Vinicky, correspondent at wttw channel 11 now joining us amanda thank you so much
11: but, of course, the bonus is mine.
3: Well, i got to tell you, it's been uh, very interesting to watch you guys over at Channel 11 and uh, truly kind of like that idea of, of uh, seeing what's going on out in the neighborhoods.
11: Yeah, there's so much to see in Chicago in terms of how people are coping. There are individual stories. There's, of course, as you just talked about with Brad, municipalities that have different situations. In a sense, we really are all in this together. We're all experiencing the same thing, having to stay at home, the heartache that that causes, the fear, the anxiety, and I do think one commonality that we've seen in our reporting is this spirit of coming together and that we're going to make it through and we're all going to do whatever that takes. And really, there has been um, not to be, you know, too sentimental here, but it is pretty incredible to see how many people have sort of risen to the occasion
3: yeah i mean we we talk about things like the exceptions like the governor was asked today about that kind of viral video of uh, of of gatherings and 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 it's it is the exception. It's not the rule. Uh, unfortunately, it does get the news attention. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, everybody deserves a, everybody deserves a great, a great applause for just the overwhelming acceptance of, of the stay-at-home order.
11: Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that that's something that we'll keep in mind. I guess that is something that as we're watching how both people and the government react, I know I've kind of said, much as I love summer, love baseball games, love being outside, it's kind of been good that the weather has been absolute well a little bit, and that I think people are staying outside, and there's there's that, and then theres also you know the element of at what point is there fatigue, not only on the personal level but as we do look to our elected officials both in Springfield, or frankly throughout the state since the Illinois General Assembly hasn't met, but nonetheless, as to those quote-unquote Springfield officials the, the state General Assembly, as well as to Congress, looking where, where there has been bipartisan cooperation and a degree of level-headedness that that remains, because clearly we have seen, as you're not a scientist, neither am I, but as we've seen, this is a virus that is scarier and harsher than anybody first thought were expected, and so it isn't going away, and we're going to need to all collectively persevere and not let sort of that fatigue set in and slug it all off.
3: Well, and, and uh, yes, we're all in this together, but I've kind of touched on this, with uh, Brad Cole, and of course, uh, Brad, former uh, mayor of Carbondale, but you know, we've already had seen kind of this uh, the regionalization complaints, uh, you know, long before the coronavirus. It's always kind of been a part of Illinois, but uh, also sure. the fact of uh, our, our, our regional diversity was also kind of a, a strength. And now, you know, I almost wonder if. Because of what the stay-at-home order, if, if that regionalism, uh, that regional debate has almost intensified. I, I got a text from somebody who said, I live downstate. Let me tell you that the animosity towards Chicago has never been greater.
11: Oh, I'm sure. You know, actually, Rick, before we get back to the coronavirus component of that, I want to share I have a book called This Day in Illinois that sits on my coffee table. And during the coronavirus, during this quarantine, I've actually had time to read it most mornings. And something stuck out at me. The April 17th entry talked about a people in Southern Illinois wanting to split from the rest of the state, and in particular, Chicago. That was back in 1861, according to this book. So there we go. Nothing new there. Um, But what's old is new again. But in in terms of that, you're certainly right. I've spoken with legislators and people. I mean, it's something that uh, folks might not realize, I think, particularly in Chicago, where there is concern about hospitals being overloaded, something we really haven't experienced a ton of, but there, there was certainly that fear, is that in central, in southern Illinois, you have hospitals laying people off in furloughs because they didn't have anybody coming in, in part because, of course, of elective surgeries, but even due to the coronavirus, they weren't seeing those numbers. Um, and that comes atop, I think, like you mentioned. That's that's nothing new. Again, heading back to 1861, there's certainly the minimum wage increases that are set to take effect that I think folks in those areas have been smarting from and didn't feel like their regional concerns were taken into account and kind of swallowed that, but are only exacerbated at this point in time as businesses are struggling, something um, that you're going to continue to see while businesses have stood side by side with the governor at these daily briefings. There has also been sort of this split given a workers' compensation rule. The commission is set to meet tomorrow to cancel something that basically automatically says that workers will get benefits as if they got COVID on the job and, and the, have yeah, businesses pushing and, back on that.
3: Which mm-hmm. which, which I thought was kind of an interesting take because obviously we, everybody wants to make sure that there's some kind of coverage and protection for people who are affected by the, the, the coronavirus, but this one was basically almost putting a, a true mandate and and potential hardship mandate on businesses by it was automatically uh, an automatic default that if somebody got workers uh, if somebody got the coronavirus that was deemed on the job a job related uh, illness and that's where the coverage went and Mm -hmm. ultimately uh, a court uh, issued an injunction against it and now we have the uh, workers comp claims uh, commission meeting again on this issue
11: And the expectation is that they're going to do away with that emergency rule, but the governor indicated on Saturday that that's not the end of the story, that he expects that they will be back. He said it is not an acknowledgement that the commission exceeded its authority. So this is going to be sort of a a coming battle. Again, it's one where um, you you very much see Illinois still has not spread to all of Illinois' 102 counties, I believe 96, so obviously the vast majority of them. But in particular regions, that's just one here or there. Of course, we know that with this virus that it is difficult to say, First of all, when there will be an outbreak, when you're going to have a group of people um, get together in some sort of mass gathering and that kicks off some sort of uh, new cluster or congregate settings can make that data a bit difficult to read versus. And there's also the just sheer element of. Early on, the lagging, particularly early on, lagging in tests, so perhaps people had the virus and didn't know it. So there, there's a lot that we don't know, and you very much understand when businesses are hurting and they're fighting all of those battles, why they want exceptions made for be it regions or particular areas, or maybe open up the doors some and just require social distancing and masks, there aren't any easy answers. And I um, certainly would not want to be in the position either of the governor or in any of those entrepreneurs and business owners who are in such difficult places right now, because I don't think there are going to be any easy answers. Again, not just now, but really, truly anytime soon.
3: We're speaking with Amanda Vinicky, correspondent at WTTW Channel 11 in Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson, the Chicago Tribune, joined on the phone by Amanda Vinicky, correspondent at WTTW Channel 11 in Chicago. We're kind of talking about what... uh, kind of what state government, what municipal government faces, what's ahead. Um, when's the last time the legislature was in session?
10: Ooh, I, <laughs>
3: <laughs> Today's trivia question. It's been
11: a while. Uh, there was a built-in spring break within the period. But, I mean, going back to before the governor issued his stay-at-home order, there were questions, you know, are you going to be back? What are you going to do? And it has become very apparent <laughs> that um, there is That that very soon what was this question? Are they going to, are they not? We got answers to that very quickly. The question that we don't have an answer to is when will they next meet and what is going to happen with the state budget? Illinois has been spending, of course, on everything from field hospitals and or what we're loosely calling that, basically coronavirus backup overflow facilities that it appears by and large, thank goodness, but are not actually going to need by and large to be used. You have that. You have um, Illinois that had planned this massive infrastructure spending, and that was counting on money from casinos and from sports betting. Oops. March Madness was canceled, no sports betting going on, no casinos up and running there. You have, of course, sales taxes going precipitously down, income taxes down because of the enormously high, unfortunately high, of course, unemployment rates. It is going to be a disaster. And we don't have answers to that either. Those, however, are things that cannot be put off for all that much longer. The deadline to pass a budget is supposed to be the end of May. Beyond that point, it takes additional votes and Democrats do have the votes in both chambers to come to some sort of agreement with governor JB Pritzker on that. But uh, the governor has presented a budget that was, you know, back when it was snowing and back in February, long before we knew coronavirus was a thing. And so He has not yet come out with any sort of other plan. He said that he's in talks with the legislature. But what Illinois is going to do and when they are going to do it, we've been asking, and we don't have any answers. The governor today was asked, you know, what are your big budget challenges? And he really couldn't quite pinpoint that other than to say revenue slash there are a lot.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, when you look at, uh, I mean, that's why, you know, mentioning, uh, senate president don Harmon's letter of, of seeking right. aid from the federal government uh you know was 41.6 billion dollars which was basically that's the state budget uh now granted yeah. it wasn't you know it, it was for various things but but nevertheless uh when you start looking at the revenue holes that exist for the current budget year which ends Uh, on June 30th, as well as the the budget hole that is projected for the budget year that starts July 1 uh, into the billions of dollars, Uh, there are no easy fixes here. Part of that, of course, is Illinois' uh, underfunded pension system, which uh, basically have a quarter of every dollar in tax revenue that goes for pensions.
11: Right. Part of it is Illinois not having made a lot of choices. I I was going to say difficult choices. Some of them, they just didn't even bother to make choices um, for so many years. And so part of that is on Illinois. And then part of it isn't. Part of it is, of course, nobody expected anything like this. So even if Illinois had a quote-unquote rainy day fund, this isn't just a rainy day It's not a storm. It is a full-blown tsunami hitting for months on end. And so there is no way that I think you're going to see any state easily recuperate from this, particularly those like Illinois, where financially we weren't doing so hot to begin with. And And one of the big questions – oh, sorry, Rick, go ahead.
3: Well, I was going to say, one of the things is when you look at a rainy day fund, there's also the political pressures that, okay, you're going to start salting away – what, $2, $3, 4000000000 billion and politically, it's like what What are you doing with that money? It's just sitting in an account. Why don't you rebate taxes or do something like that? So, I mean, that's right. the, the yin and the yang of this thing.
11: And again, not that that's been an issue that Illinois has had to face. Correct. <laughs> correct. We haven't had a rainy day. We don't have a fund to draw on at this point in time. Uh, we, we, we just don't. That is not something we're going to be looking at. What will be Interesting to watch is not only, as you noted, what lawmakers and the governor are going to do and who is going to take the lead on that. Will there be bipartisan cooperation or will this be something that you see that break either regionally given this angst that continues, that we continue to see or is that going to be something that is a partisan divide? But also what is going to happen with the graduated income tax that you haven't heard the governor talk a ton about unless he is asked but business groups are starting to really ratchet that up and then the governor very much has a response he's that will be on the november ballot and much of next year's budget the governor had really predicated on that passing and what dynamics of that have changed in terms of taxing income at graduated rates because of the coronavirus.
3: Well, and one thing that even in his estimates that we've noted is this this had been projected to, to the, the graduated tax with the uh, tax rate high on higher incomes versus the flat rate tax. That'll be a proposed constitutional amendment on your November 3rd ballot uh, to switch to a graduated tax. One of the things is Pritzker had... Uh, forecast 1.4 billion dollars in revenue additional revenue because of that tax for the six-month period that it would be uh, take effect but uh that's already been reduced by 200 million dollars so oh, yeah, that that's already been reduced by 200 million so what what's the practical impact even further given you know unemployment and those kinds of things
11: Right. Well, and and even I I think maybe some people will be more apt to vote for this because they will say, hey, wait a second, my income is severely diminished. I don't want to be taxed at that same rate. Maybe they will appreciate a tax structure that incorporates that. Others, I, I think, are saying that at this time where Uh, There is a lack of trust in general of government's period where businesses are part of that. Small businesses that, as we have talked about, are taking all of these other hits are going to be particularly anxious about what that might mean for them. Um, What sort of even ads will you see in campaigning? for or against this because we don't know what we're going to be looking at in november one of course hopes and we're looking at the end of the stay at home order going through the end of right now of may but There's no telling how long truly this could go on. I mean, I I say that and it's like, (laughs) people want to be outside. I would rather be at a White Sox game or something. But we've heard from scientists that there could be a resurgence in the fall. The governor today talked about schools needing to be prepared regardless of the pandemic. But yes, including because of COVID-19. Schools might not be in person come fall so there's so much that could change just in terms of even the conversation
3: well and that's why i wonder if given the unknowns here if we don't uh, if we rather than trying to adopt a state budget for a full year that we don't do a partial one we don't know uh, if and what form any additional federal aid may be to states and local governments that i mean it's it's kind of like uh, even as the science is it's kind of we're all developing this on the fly
11: mm-hmm. and, and that's something that we've heard lawmakers talk about and so you're right rick i guess if i had to place a bet at this point that's maybe that that's what i would do for practical reasons as well as for political ones because there would be, I think a general understanding of why that's the course of action to take and it also would allow legislators to put off some truly very difficult decisions, especially as those who are incumbents are looking to run for reelection and you both have this massive need for additional revenue going into state government in it this because unlike the we can't really you know print money and (laughs) make big deals like that that that's just not how it works and yet you, you have even as there's a total lack of revenue people don't have the extra money in their pockets now more than ever to pay in taxes and in fees and so there isn't of course going to be any appetite for that it makes it so very difficult
3: well and i have to wonder too if you know we had the the uh legislation that if this constitutional amendment gets enacted for graduated rates was based on a you know basically trying to keep this limited to people paying more would be 93 percent or or less of the public would pay less than or at least the same if not less under what the, the governor's sales pitch is for this i'm just wondering if given the Given the state of the economy, if you know, to blow up that chart, and you know what what are the what are the incomes going to be, and and whether you know this isn't something that the business community and the, the, who opposes it uh, might try to exploit is that you know there's not enough income from that that top some percent anymore.
11: You're right. I think they will, they will do all they can to fight this. That has been apparent for quite some time. So we will, we we will see that. And even as you noted, how much revenue Illinois really will get from it. I mean, I think this is a long term fight for on both sides. So looking beyond these two fiscal years, they're going to really dig in their heels because um, if it fails this time, I don't see it having an easy time coming back next time around, regardless of these very exceptional circumstances.
3: As I always say, you know, so much about politics hinges on the things that are beyond a candidate or politician's control. And I think this is a prime example of that.
11: Nobody could have ever fathomed or imagined this. <laughs> that is certainly true.
3: Uh one last thing uh, I mentioned about Sunder Harmon's letter and the the, the ten million yeah. the ten billion dollars he sought in federal assistance to, for pension stabilization, uh, I think that may have really thrown kind of a clinker into the whole argument about federal help to the states plural.
1: Yeah, it
11: was a letter that I think has, as where both sides are really, again, as you noted, I guess I'll use the best word for that, sort of exploited and taken that for all that it is worth. Um, I have gotten a lot of feedback. You know, I mean, anytime you talk pensions, there is immediate. Eyebrows raised antennas up and people paying attention. And so that's where you saw, I think, this, you know, Nikki Haley tweet, which really Very. set off this firestorm of, hey, we're not going to bail Illinois out. And then there's the conversation, Illinois being more a donor state that actually gives more to the feds in taxes and yet has
3: not it's a it's a it's a total firestorm and amanda i'm sorry end things right it's about eight
11: we can't talk that out now
3: (laughs) (laughs) amanda Vinicky, correspondent wttw channel 11 thank you so much for joining me today
11: it was a pleasure to be back rick stay safe and well and every all of your listeners and fans too
3: absolutely all of us